Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Today I'm speaking with Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital who manages several fixed income portfolios and makes bold predictions about house prices and interest rates when writing for the financial press. Don't think he needs any further introduction. Chris has been stimulating debate in this area for quite some time and uh, he always has incredibly interesting things to say. So Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Gemma, for having me. So, Chris, you've got a forecasting approach, and I think it's worth noting it is a forecasting approach. It's not like you just guess that you're pretty confident in. And you wrote two years ago that we would see massive house price growth as interest rates fell in Australia during COVID. Seemed quite shocking at the time, has since turned out to be very, very accurate. And yet you've changed your call pretty dramatically recently. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we run both very sophisticated and more intuitive models. At the sophisticated end, uh, we actually replicate and refine the RBA's internal housing model, which accounts for pretty much everything you could imagine. Incomes, interest rates, housing demand, housing supply, population growth, construction or building approvals, and so on. And using that model, we can... Uh, paint a picture of the future based on assumptions about how certain variables change, so interest rates or otherwise. When the RBA um, had last had its cash rate at 1.5% in June 2019, uh, the housing market had suffer, suffered a, a 10% uh, peak to trough fall that we had anticipated. So this is between 2017 and 2019. We expected the RBA uh, in mid-2019 to lower its cash rate. And at that point in time, I think actually in April 2019, we basically came out and said we thought house prices would rise 10 percentage points. And we were the only analyst in the market that had called the 10% correction, which was the largest in modern history from 17 to 19. So we called that in early 17. And at the time in April 19, prices were still falling and we were the only analysts in the market calling a 10% rise in prices. And that's what we got through to the, the pandemic in March 2020. And the RBA cash rate at that time was 0.75%. In response to the pandemic, we needed to model then a further fall in interest rates, which is what we did. And that basically um, told us that the fall in house prices would be very modest. So we expected a, a 0 to 5% fall in prices between March and September 2020, and prices fell 2%. And then we expected up to a 20% capital gain starting in September. Uh, and the RBA further reduced rates in November 20. And so we refined the forecast to a 20 to 30% capital gain. And I think from March through to today, the capital gains have been about 27%. Uh, and then we've also had the 10% gain from 19 to March 2020. So the total capital gain, and this is an important number, Gemma, the total capital gain since the RBA reduced its cash rate from 1.5% to almost zero was 37%. So it's quite reasonable if you want to think about a simple model, having observed that recent past, it's, I think, credible to think that if the RBA is going to reverse out that interest rate reduction 
and we're going to see a cash rate at 1.5% or more, then you're going to see a lot of payback in house prices. And when we run the RBA's model, it basically says 100 basis points of uh, permanent increases in mortgage rates would reduce house prices by about 33%. Our official forecast is we expect house prices to fall 15 to 25%. We wrote this in October last year. Prices were still rising at the time. And Gemma, we said that we thought prices would rise another at least five percentage points. They rose 5.4 percentage points. But we expected the RBA to start hiking at the earliest in mid-22. And after the first 100 basis points, we thought we'd see a peak to trough decline in house prices of between 15 and 25% which would be the biggest decline by a long margin on record. So the, the, the simple analysis is house prices are partly driven by purchasing power. You hold supply constant. And purchasing power is really driven by only two things, incomes and interest rates. So the RBA's interest rate lever is hugely influential in terms of the path of house prices. And interest rate cuts tend to drive big interest uh, house price increases. And conversely, interest rate increases are likely to drive significant house price falls. Sadly, that's what we're seeing. So we are now seeing um, Sydney and Melbourne house prices in June uh, fell by uh, more than 1%. So 1.6% in Sydney, 1.1% in Melbourne, um, so house prices in the two larger cities are now falling at a double-digit annualised rate. And we've seen uh, now Sydney house prices fall about 3.2% and uh, Melbourne house prices are off by more than 2%. So it's kind of tracking as we expected. It's just really a question of, in summary, where the RBA's cash rate ultimately lands and how big a shock to household expectations this massive shift in rates is because it's important to remember that over 20 and 2021, the RBA told everybody rates will not rise until 2024 at the earliest. And now house prices, sorry, households have suffered 125 basis points of hikes in since the start of May or in, in the last two months. And the risk is they suffer 175 basis points of hikes if the RBA hikes for uh, the third month in a row by 50 basis points in August, um, which would be uh, unprecedented. In fact, the RBA has never hiked back to back 50 before. So that was a first. And our view is this is a massive shock for Australians. And they believe the RBA when they, the RBA's governor and the RBA itself advised the market and consumers for two years in a row that rates would, re would remain low for long and specifically that rates uh, would not rise until 2024. It's quite an extraordinary situation to find ourselves in, isn't it? I mean, I never thought they'd get to 0.1 of a percent either. So <laughs> sometimes expectations can be wrong on both ends. It's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I actually think that's kind of the, one of the key messages for anyone listening is the RBA never in a million years expect to be hiking as aggressively as it is in 2022 and they were convinced it wouldn't happen for a long time and unfortunately they goaded and cajoled and uh nudged a lot of households businesses 
and even governments to take on a huge amount of debt on the proviso or assumption that they wouldn't hike. The RBA was explicitly saying to people, go out and borrow, go out and spend, go out and invest. We have your back. Don't worry about your cost of capital because it's okay. Rates will remain low, very, very low at basically zero in terms of the RBA's theoretical target overnight cash rate until 2024. And a lot of us, many Australians went out and, you know, whether it's individuals or companies or government agencies, every everyone borrowed a record amount. And uh, we're now staring down the barrel of huge interest rate increases. I mean, you would know, Jim, um, working with a bank, that APRA, when, it's, when it assesses home loan repayment capacity, up until recently, banks just used a 2% or 2.5% interest rate buffer. And what that meant is you know, you'd apply for a loan and then the bank would add 2 2.5% on top of that. And if you could repay that interest, you're okay. Well, we're looking at a two percentage point increase in mortgage rates in potentially you know the space of you know, three, four, five months. So it, this is this is pretty freaking serious. It really, it really is, and I'm kind of grateful you're saying it because I feel like a lot of people are not necessarily saying it. There's a lot of headlines, and if you haven't bought a home in the last decade, yeah, there's a lot of Australians who are in a home they bought decades ago. They're very comfortable. They don't have to worry about these things, but there are plenty of others, and it's young people who feel this more than most uh, who, who've recently joined the mortgage market. It's pretty tough. It does feel like clickbait sometimes, like some of the headlines are a bit crazy, but it does feel like the consequences of very rapid rate hikes are going to be quite significant. Are you concerned about mortgage delinquencies, about people defaulting on their mortgages and then, clearly all the flow on effects from that. Yeah, I am. I mean, I think this is actually a, a point. I can't remember a point in time where literally millions of people and businesses have basically been duped by a government agency, the RBA, into making huge financial commitments on the basis of a view of the world that they had sold to them. I mean, let's be clear, the RBA didn't cut the cash rate from 1.5% in June 19 to 0.1% in late 2020 and just do that and, and not sort of, they, they were a relentless propaganda machine. They were sort of pumping out um, massive communications, trying to convince people to spend and borrow or borrow and spend and to invest. Um, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of households and a lot of businesses are going to go bust because of the RBA. That is the essential truth, Gemma. The unfortunate fact is there are going to be many, many, many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Australian individuals and businesses that will start missing their mortgage repayments because they never expected to be paying, you know, four, five, 6% interest rates, and certainly not 12 months or actually, you know, the RVA was saying, I pulled a quote out in an AFR column recently, uh, like in one of the columns I'd written, you know, Governor Lowe was saying on, on the 16th of November that um, none of the data warrants an interest rate increase in 2022. So he was dismissing the possibility of a, a single increase, let alone 200 basis points of increases. So it's, it's pretty wacky and wild. And unfortunately, that means higher arrears. And, and what does that mean? That means lower economic growth. That means probably um, 
uh, a lift in unemployment. Ultimately, it will undermine or sap the wage growth that we were getting and that was starting to kind of come through the system. It means less consumer spending, uh, less investment. And unfortunately, at the same time, so if you think about this, Gemma, it's not just about interest rates. I mean, we have the mother of all, yeah, just a multiplicity of headwinds. So the first thing that households have to deal with is they've got record inflation. That means because their wages, like according to the ABS, the, the statistician, their wages are only increasing by about 25 3% per annum. But inflation you know, is going to be running at circa you know, 7 to 8 So households are going backwards in terms of their inflation-adjusted wages. So they've got what we call negative real wage growth. So their wages are actually shrinking after you account for the cost of living. That's one massive headwind. So we're all kind of poorer as a result of inflation, point one. Point two, they've got a huge, you know, basically unprecedented increase in their debt servicing costs. The last time we saw the RBA increase interest rates like this was 94. But there's a huge difference between 1994 and 2022. The main one is we had a hell of a lot less debt 28 years ago than we do today. So our household debt to income ratio, just looking at the value of household debt versus the value of household incomes, back then, household debt was um, worth about uh, 82% of household disposable incomes. Today, household debt represents about 187% of household disposable incomes. What that means is we are much, much more sensitive to changes in interest rates. And, and that's one of the reasons the housing market has become so elastic to changes in interest rates. This is something that we forecast um, over a decade ago. I wrote once that you should expect much more variability in house prices. This was around the time of the GFC because of the huge increase in household debt. And we've seen that. We saw a, a circa 6 to 8% fall in house prices in 2008. Then after the RBA lifted rates in 2009-10, we saw another circa 6 to 8% fall over 2010 to 2012. Then when APRA forced banks to lift investment rates in 15, 16, 17, uh, we saw um, a fall of 10 to 11% between 17 and 19. And now, sadly, we're going to see, in all likelihood, the biggest fall on record. So we've got declining real wage growth. We've got a massive in increase in debt servicing costs. Unfortunately, households are also staring down the barrel of the biggest fall in their superannuation savings since the GFC. Um, and you've also got uh, the spectre or risk that governments start tightening their belts because of the higher debt servicing costs, uh, potentially increasing taxes, certainly spending less. So fiscal policy could start detracting from economic growth rather than contributing to it. So there's a lot of headwinds that households face right now. Yeah, it's incredible when you put it like that. I was thinking when you just were making your first comments, when you look at some households who have to drive a lot, the impact of high petrol prices and tolls and so on are so significant. You know, if it's not affecting you personally, you may not realise, but for those who are in that situation, it's so important. One of the things we talk about in Australia is that people do pretty much anything to hang on to their houses. The RBA certainly did some research a few years ago now, which has been republished, I feel, so many times, saying that 30% of households are two years ahead on their mortgages. You would know this one. Uh, do you think all of that is going to help us in any way or do you think that, 
things are going to get quite dicey. Also interested in your thoughts on the wealth effect. This is this idea that my house that I bought for $50,000 is now worth $2 million. I feel quite wealthy and therefore I will spend more. Do you think there'll be just a sort of an emotional response to this when you realise you're a little bit poorer in your assets and, uh, and you stop spending? Yeah, so if you wanted to kind of mount some counter arguments to our central case that house prices fall 15 to 25%, which as I've sort of previously described, you know, I think is playing out right now. But the mitigations would be, you know, firstly, we do have um, robust wage growth. There's a bit of a debate as to how quickly wages are growing. The survey data suggests sort of higher numbers, but the official data only sort of points to 25 to 3% annual growth. So there's decent wage growth, which is not bad. Um, there has also been a positive shock to household incomes, which is worth about 8% in sort of annual wage growth terms in the form of fiscal stimulus. So during the year, during the pandemic, sorry, in both the federal and uh, state governments, uh, obviously handed out a lot of cash and this went into household bank accounts. And that's also showing up in the form of a lot of excess household savings. As you rightly point out, another mitigant is that, you know, for all the bank bashing you hear, the reality is after a whole, like a conga line of inquiries into banks culminating in the Hain Royal Commission, Aussie banks have been incredibly, you know, I think prudent and conservative lenders. And households have also, I think, behaved accordingly. So there are significant accumulated interest prepayments across the household sector in aggregate. The issue is that the housing market and, and prices are ultimately going to be determined by the um, marginal borrowers and, and the marginal uh, you know, buyers and sellers. And it'll be the people that have to sell that are ultimately hitting the bid. Uh, and so that distress that we talked about earlier, as rising interest rates force up arrears or mortgage defaults, you're likely to see more stress in the housing market. And, and those that you know, have to sell for non-financial related reasons, whether you're moving or you're downgrading because you're retiring, if people think prices are falling, um, there may be a rush as well to try and lock in um, you know, better values today to avoid the risk of inferior values in the future. I've actually seen that personally at you know, properties that I've been keeping an eye on. Um, in terms of the wealth effect, you know, there's a lot of debate about the wealth effect. I think what we know, Gemma, that you know, is that you know, in the post-pandemic period, as I mentioned, uh, we got capital gains worth 27%, and that was associated with very strong economic growth and a very strong labour market. That's another mitigant, of course. The unemployment rate is very low, you know, three point something percent. Um, and typically, there is a narrative that you don't see house prices fall unless unemployment rises. I've, you know, for over a decade rejected that thesis. I think asset prices are ultimately determined by marginal demand and supply, and that's in turn affected by purchasing power, which is really um, heavily influenced by interest rates uh, as, as a variable that swings materially. So I think there was a positive wealth effect uh, when we all felt a lot wealthier uh, and, and sort of better off as house prices stormed higher. 
And I think that that positive wealth effect was part of the sort of prosperity that we experienced in the post-pandemic period. And I think on the balance of probabilities, it's reasonable to assume that that wealth effect will uh, at least partially unwind, Gemma. Yeah, it's an interesting one, the impact on consumer spending. I think we all sometimes get a bit carried away. It's, do you have a feel for where interest rates will terminate at this point? As I said, your forecasting is surprisingly accurate. I don't mean surprisingly as it relates to you. I think a lot of people are suspicious of forecasts, but uh, when, you're, when you're landing it every time, it's worth thinking about whether or not that's likely to play out. And I should say also fixed income markets have priced in interest rate increases for, what, two years ahead of the RBA? Like you guys have been so accurate compared to the people who actually make the decisions. It's fascinating. Yeah, so it is true that the bond markets have priced in ultra-aggressive RBA rate hikes. Um, you know, they have the cash rate, the RBA cash rate, currently kind of heading towards 3.5%. And we're pricing in RBA cash rates way above that uh, you know, until very recently. And the market has certainly been... It feels a good year ahead of the RBA in terms of the need um, to raise rates. One of the interesting thoughts you know I have about the RBA is that um, it feels to me the RBA is very insecure about the fact that its own forecasts have been so terrible. Uh, when it was clear the pandemic had hit, you know I was telling them in February 2020, this is going to be a disaster. You're going to need to cut rates to zero, and you're going to need to do QE. And they really kind of dismissed that out of hand at the time. This is late February. 2020 and early March 2020. But when that policy stimulus was compelled to come in, in late March 2020 and then again in November 2020 from the RBA, um, it was really clear to us, uh, and we argued this in, in March 2020, that the economy would do really well. So the RBA and others thought, thought that house prices would fall by 10 to 20%, you know, that unemployment would ra- rise towards 10%, if not higher, and um, you know, our view was that that was far too pessimistic. And we thought the un- unemployment rate would actually very quickly settle around 6%, which is what it did, um, and that the economy would perform exceptionally well given the unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus. The RBA uh, sort of unfortunately suffered probably the most embarrassing event for a central bank since uh, George Soros pushed the pound sterling, the British currency, out of the European exchange rate mechanism in the early 1990s when the market more or less forced it out of what we call an interest rate peg. So it had pegged the interest rate on the 2024 government bond at 0.1% to show people that rates would not rise for years to come. And we had one decent inflation print in late 2021 and meeting, so in, in between the two monthly meetings that the RBA would normally have, the RBA just suddenly stopped defending the peg and then it dumped the peg at the next meeting in November 2021. So the RBA, I think, has felt um, really insecure about the fact that it's got a lot of things wrong and the market has got a lot of things right. And I actually feel, Gemma, that one of the reasons the RBA is aggressively hiking, which I don't think they should be doing, um, I think they're trying to satisfy market expectations and they've been convinced that the market is more credible than they are And for a central bank, credibility is everything. And so they think the most credible thing they can do right now is to aggressively and preemptively hike. Ironically, and this is one of the great paradoxes of RBA policy right now, 
is they're hiking based on their forecasts again. Now, I've pushed back against this. I've said, listen, the world's far too complex right now. There's so many moving parts. Lots of things are changing. You should be data dependent and what we call now casting. If I was the RBA, I would be hiking rates, but I'd be going by 25 basis point increments every single meeting and just watching the data. And if the housing market really does start cratering, which it is, and if consumer confidence tumbles to sort of GFC levels, which it is, and March 2020 levels, then I'd be using that data to probably take a fairly cautious perspective on the future. But the RBA is kind of ignoring all of that. It's looking at the what is historical inflation data. And our inflation in Australia is materially elevated because of all of these one-off impacts, the so-called supply chain impacts on things like food prices, uh, fuel, and um, the you know, inputs into uh, construction and building. These have all sort of conspired to create um, a one-off upwards shock to inflation. But those supply-side blockages, firstly, there's evidence that they're unwinding. Commodity prices are now falling. Um, you know, inventories uh, are now building again as the supply-side lubricates. And though that shock should pass through um, the data like a, a pig through a python. And, and what that means is the RBA shouldn't necessarily be kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater by hinging the entire economy's prosperity on this temporary supply side shock. So this is a long-winded way of saying, and I apologize, I feel like all my responses have been soliloquies, but this is a long-winded way of saying that, um, I guess, a few points on rates. Uh, the first is, yes, the market is expecting super aggressive hikes and an RBA cash rate around 3.5%. If that comes to pass, I think the economy unambiguously goes into recession and you know, it'll be a disaster. Um, I don't think the RBA gets there. Uh, the RBA has been saying it'll, it'll get to 2.5%. Unfortunately, I think the RBA is going to preemptively and in a deterministic fashion railroad pretty quickly to 2 to 2.5%. I think that's too fast. Uh, if it were me, I'd be going to you know one, one and a quarter, one and a half, and then pausing to assess the impact of these changes. One of the important points, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Gemma, is that the RBA is dealing with the highest debt levels across the economy that we've ever seen, and that makes the economy much more sensitive, elastic to interest rate changes. Um, and in addition to the RBA increasing its cash rate, bank funding costs are going through the roof. So the banks borrow money, and they give us that money, uh, as in we borrow from the banks. And when their funding costs increase, which they have dramatically, and I can give you some numbers on that, uh, what happens is uh, they have to lift all borrowing rates. And we are seeing not only a super sharp increase in the RBA's cash rate, um, again, we're staring down the barrel of uh, the cash rate increasing by 1.75% uh, in August if they lift by another 50 basis points. But we've also seen the cost of bank borrow borrowing a top, on top of that cash rate or the risk premium that the banks uh, get charged to borrow from the market expand dramatically. So to give you some kind of numbers or point estimates, uh, for NAB, when it borrowed five-year money, a year ago, when NAB borrowed five-year money, it would pay 25 basis points over the bank bill rate. And the bank bill rate a year ago was basically zero, 0.01%. Uh, today, if NAB wanted to borrow five-year money, it would probably have to pay 1.25% above the bank bill rate. And the bank bill rate itself has jumped to about uh, you know 1.9%. So you just had a spectacular increase in uh, credit spreads and um, you know, the, the borrowing rates above cash that people pay in addition to a spectacular increase in the cash rate. So I think it's all too much. 
Um, so to answer your question, I think the RBA is going to push hard towards a 2% cash rate. But I think if they get there, I personally don't think they should lift much more beyond one to one and a half initially to assess the impact of these changes. But if they get there, I think the consequences are going to be so deleterious uh, for the macro economy in the form of you know, the housing market uh, and other interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. And as you mentioned, the associated wealth effects, so both the direct and indirect economic consequences of those changes, I think the RBA will be forced to pause uh, wherever it stops. So it's possible that you know, if the housing market really turns violently in the next few months, um, and it is turning pretty violently, but if it, if it continues and extends and accelerates, uh, it's possible the RBA may run out of steam at somewhere between um, you know, circa one and a half to 2%. But I think that they're probably going to pile drive their way to two on the basis of forecasts of the future that are not worth the paper they're, they're written on. And um, unfortunately, I think Australia is going to face um, some pretty tough economic challenges as a consequence. I love how frank you are. I think for those of us who've been around a long time and had mortgages, I remember when my mortgage got under 6%. And oh, my God, I was so happy. It's a great day. Uh, watching this happen is quite quite nerve-wracking. Uh, you've mentioned fixed income markets, and I do find this really interesting. Bond markets have been hard to get excited about for over a decade now, precisely because interest rates have been so low. And for a lot of investors, they've moved their way up the risk curve and ended up mostly in equities and property because they felt like they had no choice. So the whole Tina principle has applied really, really uh, practically for retail investors, the people that I talk to. And things are starting to change. So they're asking now, do I need to look at fixed income markets? But they look complex and difficult in this environment too. So can you talk us through what's been happening in fixed income markets over the last 12 months and how they're faring? Yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty simple. We've seen huge increase in interest rates and um, particularly for fixed rate bonds, what that means is their prices fall as their yield increases. So the big increase in interest rates manifests in so many different ways, Gemma. So I'm sure folks listening to this have seen, you know, 12 month term deposit rates have lifted from circa you know, 0.3 to 0.5% to now, you know, you can probably get somewhere between three, three and a half, if not more. Uh, so that's at the bank deposit end of the spectrum. If we go out in time across what we call the yield curve and we look for a 10 year analog to a term deposit. So we could look at a 10-year Commonwealth bond. Well, we've seen the interest rate on a 10-year Commonwealth bond or the yield lift from about 1% last year in, uh, in August last year to as high of, and I'm looking at a chart of it right now on my Bloomberg terminal, terminal as high as 4.2 plus percent. So the 10-year interest rate is actually more than quadrupled from its level in 2021, it's, it's lows in 2021 around 1%, up to over 4.2%. And uh, it's now currently sitting at 3.6%. So that's pretty cool. Think about that, that you can get an interest rate guaranteed by the Commonwealth for 3.6% uh, on 10-year money, or you can get a bank deposit at three, three and a half. So that then begs the question, well, why would you go and buy a residential investment property paying you a rental yield of two, three, even 4%? After costs, depreciation, transaction costs, land tax, stamp duty, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're looking at a net rental yield, best case scenario, between two and three. That's not even being term deposits right now, let alone you know, government bonds. Uh, again, if you look at bank hybrids, you know, the yield to maturity. Uh, um, so that's a, a slightly more complex concept. If you took a CBA or uh, a NAB long dated hybrid, 
you're probably looking right now at yields to maturity or yields to when the hybrid is expected to be repaid. So you know, the ones I have in mind right now are circa seven-year hybrids. Uh, a seven-year hybrid is paying a yield over that expected lifetime of you know as much as you know circa six to seven percent. Um, another example would be a NAB T2 bond or a CBA T2 bond um, that is uh, five years and fixed rate rather than floating rate. That's probably paying you about you know six percent right now. Uh, or five to six percent, I guess. Our yields have come out in a little bit of late. Um, so you can get incredible interest rates, uh, interest rates that we've not seen for many, many years, and that's been driven by two factors. One is, well, actually, three factors. The first is the RBA has been lifting the cash rate. So as the RBA lifts the cap, lifts the cash rate, um, you know, on those hybrids, for example, they pay a margin above something called the bank bill rate, and that bank bill rate is based on the cash rate. And as I mentioned, that bank bill rate is around one point nine percent, and they pay you about three to four percent above that margin. So as that that bank bill rate increases and the RBA cash rate increases, we get higher returns. Uh, but there's also expectations where that cash rate will go. As I mentioned, uh, you know, we we are in the low ones right now uh, in terms of the RBA's cash rate, but the market expects us to get to 3.5%, and that's priced into current interest rates. That's why our 10-year government bond yield is sitting at 3.6%, because that embeds into it an expectation of where the average RBA cash rate will be over the next 10 years. So the first thing is, you know, the RBA cash rate is lifted physically, practically, in actuality. The second thing is that, you know, interest rates today on longer-term securities, be they term deposits or, you know, seven-year hybrids or 10-year Commonwealth bonds, they embed in them expectations of future RBA changes. And then the third thing is that credit spreads or the risk uh, premium or the extra margin that a CBA, NAB, ANZ or Westpac has to pay or we have to pay as individual borrowers above the RBA cash rate, that's expanded. So the way to think about that is, as I mentioned, you know, NAB, if it borrowed a five-year senior bond, a year ago it was paying 25 basis points or 0.25% over basically zero. Today it's paying probably 1.25% over 1.9%. So that's a huge change for us as borrowers. Uh, you know, um, a year ago, we could get sub 2% mortgage rates. Uh, today, you're probably uh, struggling to get sub 3% mortgage rates if you're a variable rate borrower. So uh, the positive, um, I guess, message is the interest rates available in fixed income have suddenly become incredibly attractive and much better than the yields on uh, residential property, much better than the yields on commercial property, much better than a lot of the yields in equities. Um, it's quite interesting before franking, uh, you know the dividend yield on the all ordinary or all ordinaries index or across the ASX market uh, is probably around five ish percent um, right now, and um, uh, so that that's good. The the bad news is that prices have fallen, so bond prices have declined as a consequence of um, yields rising. If you have a fixed rate bond, so that's like having a twelve month term deposit. Let's say you fix it for three percent, but let's say that in a month you can get 12-month TDs at 6%, then the value that if you sold your TD to somebody that wanted a 6% interest rate on their, interest rate on their TD, then they wouldn't accept, obviously, uh, a payment of 100 cents in the dollar. They'd pay you less than 100 cents in the dollar to give themselves basically a 6% yield, and you'd suffer a capital loss. And that's what's happened. So the Ausbond Composite Bond Index, which is the main Australian bond benchmark that super funds are benchmarked against, that I think has fallen 12.4% peak to trough. It's the biggest fall ever in bond market history. Uh, the global bond benchmark, it's called the uh, Bloomberg uh, Global Aggregate Index, uh, I believe that's off about 16.5%. So you've got massive falls in bond markets, so 12 to 16.5% um, across the fixed rate bonds. 
And then the floating rate bonds, which do not suffer when the RBA lifts or reduces its interest rate, they just pay a floating margin, like a, a floating uh, savings account interest rate or like a variable home loan rate, as opposed to a fixed rate home loan rate. Um, the floating rate note index in Australia, Osborne FRN index, it's also off um, about 1% over the last year. So the floating market has fallen about 1%. The fixed market has fallen about 12 to 13. And you know the, the hybrid market, as an example, um, has also fallen by a couple of percentage points in the year to June. Uh, so, so, you know, that's not great. I guess it looks better compared to other things like, you know, the, the S&P 500 has fallen as much as I think about 24% um, in uh, the you know, peak to trough uh, since it's um, apogee late last year. The NASDAQ index has fallen as much as you know, 34%. Bitcoin has fallen, you know, 70 to 80% and crypto, other cryptocurrencies have fared worse. And now we're going to unfortunately wear um, uh, in all likelihood across the nation, a 15 to 25% fall in house price prices. But Gemma, I'd stress that in individual pockets, you know, in, in localities, in individual suburbs, you're going to see much bigger price falls. You know, I've seen, um, you know, south of Sydney, you know, holiday areas like Jeroa be absolutely hammered. I think prices down there are already off 30%. Uh, and certainly in the east and suburbs of Sydney, you know, agents are saying prices are already off 10%. So, so, um, Fixed income has suffered alongside other asset classes, to be clear. Uh, whether it's floating or fixed, they've all delivered negative total returns. But the quid pro quo is you are getting the best yields in fixed income that we've seen in a very, very long time. And the other thing I'd stress is I think there's more bad news priced into fixed income than there is in equities. So let's take the RBA cash rate. If the RBA really got to a 3.5% cash rate, Gemma, I think Aussie equities would be absolutely destroyed. Right, so the equities market is not really pricing in that bad RBA cash rate news, whereas the bond market is. And it's also, I think, true in the US. The US Federal Reserve is expected to lift its cash rate to around two and a half to three percent, which is what we forecast late last year. We said the Fed would go to two and a half to three uh, when the market was saying they'd only go to about one point something, like 1.3 was the market's forecast in December last year. Um, and they're on track to do that. But it's arguable that US equities are not pricing in any real adversity to earnings. And the earnings channel um, is, is very, very vulnerable in terms of you know, additional downside risk to um, US equity market valuations. So I think that not only is fixed income offering um, exceptionally attractive yields, uh, but it's also pricing in a lot of very bad news in terms of interest rate increases. Uh, and, and those interest rate increases are unlikely to be achieved in Australia. I think in the US they will be achieved, but I don't see the RBA getting to a 3.5% cash rate. And what that sort of suggests is there's this window of opportunity to lock in these attractive interest rates that will eventually disappear because eventually, Jim, the market will figure out that, okay, the RBA is not going to get to 3.5% because the house prices would fall you know, 40 to 50%. Um, and uh, on that basis, and the RBA is probably going to you know, run out of steam in the high ones or low twos, and um, and those interest rates will reset, and that will reduce yields. That's an incredible summary, I think, for so many investors that give such a broad picture of what we're facing into, and it does feel like such a tipping point in markets in so many ways, so many things for investors to think about. One final question for you then. A lot of our investors are looking for defensive assets, and they went through the GFC and then also the most recent six months and saw all assets 
pretty highly correlated, far more than you would like if you were well diversified. Where do you suggest they look right now? Um, yeah, okay, that's a fascinating question. It's kind of like what I'm obsessed with right now. So I'm going to use a little bit of jargon, unfortunately, um, but if we look across the, the bond markets, what do we like and dislike? Um, what I don't like right now are RMBS or residential mortgage-backed securities. This is not personal advice, financial advice. I'm just telling you what I think rather than what you should do. So please seek a, you know, the counsel of a, a wise financial advisor. But um, yeah, RMBS is, is suffering because of three things. Uh, higher house prices reduce the value of the assets protecting uh, RMBS. RMBS is basically a bond that's backed by typically you know, thousands of home loans. So as house prices fall, the loan-to-value ratios on those loans increase and the, the collateral protecting the bond falls. So the leverage increases. So house price falls are negative for RMBS. Rising arrears rates are also negative for RMBS. Um, and then finally, the biggest buyer of RMBS in Australia were banks. And the banks bought RMBS for a liquidity facility that APRA has now shut down. So they are no longer the, the kind of um, buyer of first or last resort. So I'm very negative on RMBS. And we've seen, Jim, the RMBS market is incredibly illiquid right now. I do think that, you know, I'm not a perma bear on RMBS. I do think there'll be opportunities in one to two years' time. Uh, so that's something to watch out for, but definitely not now. You'd want to see house prices down, you know, 10 to 20% arrears right up. So RMBS is negative. Um, I think uh, term deposits are okay. Uh, the issue I have with term deposits is uh, I think you'll get much more attractive rates in six to 12 months. But as I mentioned earlier, equally, I don't think the full sort of three and a half percent cash rate expectation that's currently being priced into the market will be realized. Um, so, Having, you know, having said that, you know, I think that there may be uh, better rates available soon in the TD market. Uh, I do think current rates are, are pretty attractive. So I don't mind TDs. Um, the hybrid market's interesting. Um, we've had uh, five-year major bank hybrid spreads ended last year at 2.07% above the bank bill rate. As I mentioned, the bank bill rate was basically zero. The bank bill rate, as I've also cited, is 1.9% now or thereabouts. And um, the spread that the major banks pay on their hybrids above that bank bill rate is also expanded. So it's increased from 2.07% uh, at its lows uh, late last year, all the way to as much as 3.7%. Um, a while ago, we have had uh, four deals from all four major bank, hybrid, uh, major bank hybrid issuers. So the major banks have bought <clears throat> these transactions to market, each circa one and a half billion in size, and that has softened the market up. We've also had a deal from Macquarie, and there's been a lot of supply. There should not be, in theory, much supply for the remainder of the year. Uh, there's a Westpac maturity that's rolling off that will pour cash back into the market because that's already been refinanced. There's uh, CBAPD in December, uh, and I think there's a ANZ maturity early next year. Um, so the hybrid market, I think, from a, a demand supply perspective, has gone through a tough patch. But having said that, hybrid spreads historically have been around the 330, 340 level. Uh, they were, they did get out to about 370 or 3.7%. They've come in now to under the that 3.3% to 3.4% historical margin. So I think the hybrid market is, is fine. I think that the much higher RBA cash rate, the much higher bank bill rate, and the total return on hybrids you're getting, you're getting running yields of around 5%. Um, and yields to maturity, as I mentioned, are, you know, as, as high as 6 to 7%. So I think that that's fantastic. 
the spread, which is the way we, we think about these markets often, the credit spread above the, the bank bill rate or that margin is not wildly attractive. So I'm neutral on that spread, um, but I'm attractive on the, or I'm, I'm kind of bullish on the, the total return on hybrids. Uh, the sector I really like right now uh, is the T2 subordinated bond sector. Uh, the major bank T2 spreads have gone from 1.25% above bank bills all the way out to 2.6% above bank bills. So the move has um, been pretty dramatic. Um, and uh, you then add that 2.6% margin onto the 1.9% bank bill rate. And again, you're getting very attractive returns. So T2 looks cheap. Um, it's relative to hybrids, much cheaper on a historical basis. So the average hybrid spread, as I said to you, over bank bills is about 3.4%. We're sitting under that right now. Uh, the average T2 spread since, uh, we look at data since uh, 2014, mainly because that's when Basel III was implemented, which is the global banking regulations. The average T2 spread since that period um, has been about 1.8, 1.9%, and we're seeing it 2.6%. Again, you've got to add in the 1.9% bank bill rate on top of that to get the total return. Uh, and so hybrid, sorry, T2 looks really attractive. Uh, bank senior paper, I think, looks attractive out to about three years. Uh, so one, two, three-year major bank senior bonds we like. Uh, four and five-year paper looks less attractive. Um, the major banks' uh, US dollar bonds at the five-year tenor are, are much cheaper. Um, but having said that, you know, major bank senior spreads have moved significantly. So again, a year ago, there were 25 over bank bills. Today, we're kind of uh, technically in the secondary market about 100 over. I mentioned 125 before because if NAB were to do a new deal, it would probably come in with a, a new issue concession. So a bit cheaper, um, and I just use that one point. 25% margin, uh, margin is a bit of a benchmark in, in that respect. So I, I, I kind of like Senior. Uh, again, the biggest buyer of Senior was uh, the banks themselves through that liquidity facility, APRA shut down. So that in market has been impacted a bit by the, the shuttering of that facility. We have, however, seen very strong offshore demand for Aussie Bank Senior. We're not seeing that in RMBS. So I'm negative RMBS, neutral hybrids to positive, but very positive on bank tier two. Um, probably neutral to positive on bank senior. My, my summary is that I think credit spreads will probably drift a bit wider, but the all-in yield you're getting right now is something that you probably want to take advantage of. Again, I'm talking to myself, not to you, because I can't give you personal financial advice. I'm laughing a little bit when you said I'm talking to myself. It's um, I think for investors, they haven't looked necessarily very closely at fixed income for a long time. What you've just said is suddenly extremely interesting to people when you are looking for yields and you're interested in an asset class that might have already worn the pain and it has priced in all the bad news. It's something potentially to get excited about. Chris, you provide commentary in the media, you do an exceptional job of getting interesting, thoughtful commentary out there that people can action. Coolabug Capital is a great source of broader commentary as well. Where can people go to find out more about you guys and what you're thinking? Yeah, you can um, check me out on Twitter at C-J-O-Y-E. That's Julia Oscar Yankee Echo um, or Charlie Julia Oscar Yankee Echo. Uh, obviously, I'm pretty active. So I'm active on Twitter, uh, just kind of tweeting out my uh, stuff. I don't necessarily communicate a huge amount on Twitter otherwise. I'm active on LinkedIn, so you can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm very active on Livewire, uh, which is another financial news site that I write for. And then, of course, I write a weekly column for the uh, Financial Review newspaper, um, and that comes out online on Fridays and is in print on Saturdays. So really appreciate your time, Gemma. I really appreciate the opportunity to engage um, in what is you know, the leading financial podcast in Australia. Um, and also I really appreciate the time of the listeners that's made, that have made it to this, uh, this end of the podcast because uh, I realised that you know, there were some long monologues there for which I apologise. 
Not at all. We're uh, we're so grateful to have you. And I think you don't always get a lot of frankness from guests and you don't always get bold predictions. Things have become more elastic and more volatile, right? And it's fantastic to get someone who's willing to say how they think it's going to play out. Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback. We love hearing your questions. Uh, Property prices was most definitely something you wanted to hear about. Please email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.